0: Uh, we're in the holiday season, which always causes us to reflect and always worth reflecting on our mission, Zach. Our mission is to change how the entire United States thinks about drugs and addiction. Because everything's the wrong way for a hundred years or so. It's a small little burden we place on ourselves, but you know, why not take it on? So... Um, uh, some of what we've talked about recently has included the um, rise of Anna Lemke, uh, the Stanford addiction star who testified to um, on um, uh, the biggest libertarian pro-drug you know, podcast. Joe. Joe. yeah, and him, Who's a great fan of Carl Hart. And Anna Lemke, I guess if I had one byline for her, I would say somebody who's so frightened about some things can't possibly deal with something rationally or scientifically. Hmm. Um, She's a person who's scared of drugs. And um, it's like somebody who has a nightmare. They start building it up bigger and bigger in their mind so that in a recent California trial... Testified that 25% of people who take opioid painkillers become addicted, which is preposterous. Um the judge called BS on her, and she said, Well, painkillers don't serve any useful function, even though it's actually written into law in California, and she's at Stanford, that you have to a patient has a right to appropriate pain relief because it can enable them to function in their lives. So she's a healthcare provider and the addiction expert at Stanford is violating the law Mm. and her ethical concerns and the ethical concerns of medicine by constantly downgrading pain relief because she's afraid of painkillers. You know, I don't know enough about her to know where that comes from. So those were the first two components that a California Superior Court decision uh, ruled against uh, for government bodies suing drug manufacturers on the, you know, the typical claim. Well, they misled doctors to prescribe too many medications and the court said, well, that didn't happen. I mean, there are always pill mills. There have been that forever. Where people just lock out pills to get money, <clears throat> but ordinary doctors were not prescribing out of the, the ordinary. But there was a third. There were four pieces in the decision against the municipalities and counties. Um, the other was um, specificity. Uh, in other words, they accused plaintiffs, the government body suing, of you know generalizing from West Virginia and Appalachia to Orange County, California. And the lawyer said, well, you know, we wanted this, it was a California state case. If they wanted to sue us in California, they had to talk about drug use in California. And the last thing is causality. They brought in some economics expert who said, well, the data don't support the causality of prescribing practices leading to drug deaths. And just a quick version of that is, Since 2014, drug painkiller prescriptions have been going down so that they're almost half of what they were in 2014 currently. And drug deaths have more than doubled in that time period. So you don't have to go through an economic analysis to say, wait a second, this doesn't tie up. Reducing prescriptions is not having the effect of reducing deaths. In fact, They're expanding. They're growing. But in a strange way, nobody cares about that. Mm. Um, Because sort of by the very definition, well, they're dying in West Virginia. What the hell do we care? We just have this belief that drugs make you addicted and we dislike drugs and that's what we're going to talk about. So when they got into a court of law that all fell to pieces. So that's one side of the equation that we're trying to explain is drugs are a normal part of human experience. Um, Painkillers have been used since infinity. Um, Opiates have been known since the ancient Greeks and before that. And we're in a modern campaign to um, obliviate that and centuries old realization. And so we also have discussed that there was a, somebody has revisited, a journalist revisited the Vietnam research by Lee Robbins. And what did Lee Robbins find? That if you took a bunch of soldiers who were normal average people, brought them to Vietnam, addicted them to heroin, although a lot of them took heroin only as a minority became addicted. Of those who became addicted when they returned to the United States within three months, of them had quit. Or even if they used the narcotic again, they weren't addicted. And uh, Lemke has also uh, commented on that in a separate thing called uh, 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 a Netflix series called The Pharmacist, where for her, that, that surge in heroin use proves her crazed hypothesis that drugs make people addicted, even though, as you and I have written about... In in filter, it proves the opposite. So, um, so there are people who
1: have structured this belief system around themselves, and they, um, you know, Anna Lemke is just a recent example of it. But you come to this determination almost like a religious belief. It's almost like you're rattling scripture, and, um, you know, it's in some ways it can be okay to question it, but not in depth. You're not supposed to not believe the thing. And she believes this so much that she. It all came crashing down on her. It's also it's already crashing down on her in the periphery. Like you say, people are dying, and of the very causes she
0: says. Let that me she just said, mention: me... at the end of April of this year, the deaths over the previous twelve months were a hundred thousand, which is an all-time record. Yeah. And so you're sitting there saying, "Doesn't this discourage anybody from how mm-hmm. we've been approaching it?" But the answer is no. I'm sorry, and, go and,
1: and now it comes crashing down right in front of her face. In law, um, where she's espousing the beliefs that she really believes them, you know, she really believes that a quarter of people who take painkillers become addicted to them. Um, I wonder if
0: she got on television would she just make that claim again?
1: Yeah, right. That's exactly what I'm what I'm going for. right. Is that now this is happening right in front of her? Would she go on right as you say in television and? papers and journals and whatever and continue to make that claim
0: and you wonder what the people at stanford is a bunch of brilliant medical people i I sent a copy of the article to the dean's office and said maybe you want to look at this i I had written in the in filter about how a recent court case declared um the disease theory of opioid addiction you take it you become addicted bullshit i didn't that wasn't in the title um, so I mailed it to them, and what do they think? They probably think, oh, wow, she's getting so much publicity. She's uh, quoted on, new, on Hulu and um, um, Netflix and Joe Rogan. But this wasn't such good publicity when the state of California said, well, everything she says is wrong. And the implication is harmful. Do they mind? So anyhow, one side of the equation is to say um, drug use is sort of like everything else. And you and I, or I and you, I've been attacking this for 50 years. We wrote about, Archie Rotsky and I wrote about the Vietnam War experience and how it disproved the notions we had of addiction. And Love and Addiction was published in 1975. And now in... um, in 2021, they're writing articles. You know, nobody paid attention to that whole Vietnam thing. So there's another way to approach the idea that drugs are a normal part of human experience. And that is to portray that because it's real. And you and I have discussed Mayor of East Town and Hacks, which were two programs on whatever, Netflix or whatever, um HBO, where uh, Maria of Easttown, what's her name, uh, Mayor of Easttown, was a little self-conscious. When they were passing out flyers, they passed them out at a marijuana, medical, pharmacy, and a needle exchange. And I mainly use them as an example because drinking and drugs, they drank a lot, and drugs weren't used as an excuse for anything. But in a way, Hacks, which is about a middle-aged comedian or an older senior citizen comedian, And a millennial partnered up. They were both kind of hacky writers. um, And they made each other better as human beings. And it so happens the millennial sort of just takes drugs willy-nilly. She meets a guy, and I guess they take cocaine. Who knows? You don't even know totally what drugs they're taking. And so now something else has come up along those lines, I know nothing about it, but what I read in the paper, Michaela Coel's comedy drama, drama, may I may destroy you, was the biggest show. It's a serial. Um, Is it is it on HBO? I I don't even know which. Yeah,
1: I think it's HBO. Yeah.
0: And this is just a, I may destroy you was the most critically acclaimed television program of twenty twenty and was described by the New York Times as the perfect show for an anxious world. And then it won the BAFTAs for best miniseries, blah, 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 blah. It won everything. No American account that I read of it describes the fact that it's sort of about drug use. I mean, the problem that she's dealing with is she's supposed to be writing a book proposal. The main character, um, Michaela Cole plays a character. um, um, I'm trying to find the character Arabella and she's supposed to be writing and she's, she smokes pot to write. That's just for starters. At some point they say, well, let's get some drugs. I mean, well, marijuana and alcohol don't count. And she goes out for the night. She snorts some cocaine she ends up being sexually Well, It's not, that might've been due to the drug, but somebody spiked her out, her drink. And it's sort of a detective show figuring out why that happened, but why she was sexually assaulted is never portrayed as being due to the drug. Um, And I've read nothing in American reviews of the show that talks about the ubiquitous drug use. So I'm just going to read about these are two British commentators, Lakeisha Godluck. Um, for millennials, drug use has become ubiquitous, so much so that when whether you take drugs or not has become a preference question on dating apps. I hope you don't mind me asking you a personal question. Are you a millennial, Zach? I think
1: I think so. Born in eighty six, I think I called that classifies me as a millennial.
0: So, Mikella, the. The auteur, she's starring in it, and she wrote it, cleverly opens up a dialogue about assault, but is careful not to victim-blame or depict drugs in a holy damning light. Fast forward to episode three, and you'll discover the drugs act as a gateway for Arabella and her long-distance beau, Biagio. She has a lover, an Italian lover. Arabella hits the MDMA and ends up in the arms of the Italian drug dealer, who had sold her this substance mere hours before In her hotel, sniffing lines of coke until her nose bleeds while he looks on of amusement. And then they have some kind of a sexual interaction. Arabella is shown taking solo trips to the toilet to do endless keys of coke and cat. So there's a a variety of drugs that they buy, and you're never sure what she's doing. Leaving Terry, her her best friend, to wander home alone, disheartened in the search of companionship. Throughout McKellar, is wise to show drug use as a nuanced activity. After all, what goes on, must, what goes up must come down. What do do they mean by nuanced activity, do you reckon? This reviewer, what does they mean by nuanced activity?
1: Sure, I guess, are they saying that it's nuanced because the drugs aren't the center focus of what she's doing? She's partying, she's trying to find companionship, there are a lot of different Dimensions of what she's up to. There's a lot of
0: different ways of using drugs. There's a lot of different consequences. They're tied up to a lot of different things. So here's another review in The Guardian by somebody named Amy Nichol. The way I May Destroy You depicts drug use is refreshing. It's time we code up to reality. The nuance, portray- she used nuance too. The nuance portrayal in the show highlights how drugs and the complications around them are a part of everyday life for many. Hmm. throughout the show cole's character arabella and her friends experiment with various drugs in different settings from sourcing drugs abroad to watching tv sharing a spiff the drug use the mixing in particular can be jarring and is often uncomfortable to watch however while drug use is inherent to some characters lives it runs it runs alongside the narrative what's that mean it runs alongside the narrative
1: it's happening along with the story. It's not the story.
0: And what's it mean that it can be disturbing to watch her? They go and buy a bunch of drugs, and you don't know, you know what drugs are taking at any one time. We're in we're aware of harm reduction.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We don't recommend that people buy a, a bunch of unsourced drugs and mix and match them. But people do that all the time. And what's your reaction to that? I mean, you know, you wouldn't do that. You don't want anybody you care about doing that. Certainly any clients, you would say, you know, pick a drug and stick to it and know where it comes from. How do you react to the fact, well, there's a lot of people out in the street. And by the way, Ariel and her friends in the drug dealer are educated and successfully employed. They're not street people. Did I, did I mention that Arabella... Is a uh, black so, and it's set in England,
1: hmm.
0: so it's a little distanced from an American experience, you know. So, how do you react to the fact she's can be jar? Their mixing, in particular, can be jarring and is often uncomfortable. Watch the person writing this knows what we know, but what happens generally when people do that?
1: Right, the the writer there is not saying. She's doing drugs. Oh my God! She's saying there's drug use that runs alongside the narrative, and then there's a, there's an element of destruct self destructiveness that the character portrays by not being thoughtful about which drugs she's using. She just is ingesting them whenever she can, whatever she can, from wherever she can get it.
0: A little better than that. She 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 knows a little bit about the source, but but she survived, But still, her problem isn't what drugs she took that she knew or didn't take, her drink was spiked, she took cocaine or whatever else, it, she was betrayed by her friends, where that story's going. Mm-hmm. And so even, and but she's an intelligent person, even taking a modicum of safety precautions, it it, it raises the risk of using drugs, and it's self-destructive, but it's generally okay. I and mean, where you were
1: going with that is well, that she was she was with a friend, somebody who she could rely on to they could take care of each other. And now she's friendless, kind of out there in the world doing these things without um, an ear out for the possible consequences of what might happen if she's too destructive with them.
0: And we we're not we're not for that. And the person writing the review is not for that. But most people survive and, you know, we want to help them anyhow. So if they show up in an emergency room, we say, well, what's the matter? That came up in Hacks. Um, You know, we recommend certain policies, but if you you recommend policies and tell everybody to do them, that'll never happen. Right. And so we deal with normal human beings in normal circumstances doing whatever they do. And for the most part, unless people are extremely self-destructive, That works. They'll survive. So the person who's writing all this is, I've been closer than most of the devastation substance addiction can have. First of all, she used the term substance addiction. So, okay, I already like her. We're going to get into addiction. Doesn't mean drugs. But I don't believe this is um, Amy Nickel writing. But I, I don't, she talks about, I I think her mother and her sister, I think, both died around drugs, I think. But I don't believe in an intrinsic good or bad nature of any substance. And that's what Coel communicates so perfectly with a depiction of drugs that is unusually nuanced. We're back to nuanced again. Mm -hmm. The characters use drugs recreationally throughout the picture. They're woven into the fabric of the story rather than being its driving force. Often the script will miss out full disclosure of what exactly is being used. Because, you know, they bought a bunch of stuff and they're snorting it and you don't know what the hell they're doing. Leaving the viewer to fill in the blanks with their own experiences. Here, there's a clear cultural accommodation of drug use by both users and non-users who tolerate it as a part of their normal world. Hmm. Is that true? I mean, you're a you're a millennial. You know, you work with younger people. In your lifetime, you've hung out with drug users. Is this is this is what they're saying? Is what Amy Nichols saying true?
1: The people take drugs. I mean, some people do it in privacy because they're medicating themselves. Some people do it as part of a nightlife. What tends to be true, though, is that there is a. Um, Look, back to, I was saying something about the disease model kind of being like a set of beliefs, it's like a religion and gospel, and it doesn't really need to make sense. You just need to repeat it and acknowledge it and accept it. And if it's if you think of it like that, we're all sort of conditioned, us millennials, but I think uh, a lot of people were conditioned as like a, it's almost like school was a Sunday school because we have dare and people telling us not to do drugs. So there is, um, I think, a sense of that millennials have a nightlife that's separate from the rest of their lives. They're allowed you know, to kind all of...
0: all these lectures, and they're still going out and taking drugs. Right. And they right. sort of believe the lectures, maybe, but what the heck, they still take the drugs anyhow or something.
1: Exactly, It' There's It's almost like the, a strong set of... A strong cognitive dissonance between... What they want to do to relax, to be around each other, to be social, and then sort of the business end of things where they go to work and meet with their families. So there, I think it is true that it's a very, um, it's a ubiquitous part of millennial culture to be out, to be drinking, to be doing some drugs recreationally or maybe lots of different drugs recreationally. And by and large, millennials who are out experiencing those things don't turn their heads and say, what's going on here? It's, it's common enough. But um, but then it doesn't really get talked... It's sort of a, a hush kind of a thing. You don't talk about it in your day-to-day life or, you know, your...
0: So Amy Nickel is saying, well, thank God there's a television series that brings us out in the open. Now, maybe right. can deal with this. But I, I read all the different... Reviews. I didn't, Nobody in America... I mean, the whole movie show is about drug use. She gets sexually assaulted using drugs in the first episode. And the third episode, she they show her at the very beginning, she has an ambiguous relationship with an Italian boyfriend. They show her taking a ton of drugs with him and he's a drug dealer. By the way, he abstains from drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all about drugs. (laughs) but Nobody mentions that in the reviews. It's almost as though, well, this is really a well-done show. It's accurate, it's nuanced. But for God's sake, we can't talk about drugs.
1: Does anybody say that in the reviews, we can't talk about drugs? Or do people ignore the fact that there are drugs?
0: Ignore it. It's sort of like you can imagine in a school setting, well, you can imagine a harm reduction approach to drugs in a school setting. you probably thought about this more than the average person, where you sort of say, well, look, we know a lot of you are taking drugs. Right. Let's talk about it. That's not going to happen.
1: Because, you know, ignoring that there are drugs in American reviews of the show tells me um, more than more than it telling me that people disapprove of the drug aspect of the show. It tells me that it's actually so normal that even the reviewers don't think much about it.
0: If the if the reviewers are millennials, they've been to parties where people go into. the
1: (laughs) Right. Right.
0: MDMA, MDMA or cocaine. And they don't think anything about it. You know, why would you even mention it? You're saying that could be. Yeah. So when I started out in this business um, I, in my lifetime, I've been invited to some fairly prestigious places. There's a very famous Baltimore city, city hospital group that did research you're not allowed to do anymore. Where they would take street alcoholics, guys who just drank in the street, and they would bring them into the laboratory, and they would say, um, "If we'll give you as much as you want to drink, and you can sit in this little blank room, or you can come out in the living room with a bunch of other guys and watch television and have snacks," and they cut back their drinking, and they say, "Well, this isn't much of an experiment. It just shows, well, they're like regular people." Right. If you give them a fun enough alternative, they'll drink less. And, and they say, so this is this whole loss-of-control model makes no sense. Mm-hmm. So I lectured to them, and my lectures consisted of sort of making two columns. This is before I used PowerPoint or anything. How people use drugs in a wide variety of ways, including painkillers, including heroin, which is what the Vietnam story was about, um, And it depends on who they are and where they are. And that's one column. And then here's another column. We only hear about drugs from the worst users. You know, when somebody dies or when somebody's so addicted it's unbelievable and they throw all consideration to the wind, that's when we hear about them. And I say, but you know, there are people like that who behave that way in a lot of different areas of life. And so I want to switch now from talking about drugs. Um, The New York Times had a holiday feature. You know, there must be some perverted people called the woman on the bridge. Um, It's not a happy story. Um, Police and prosecutors spent five years chasing a domestic violence case. Would it be enough? Well, I'll jump to the end. It wasn't enough. So at the it, the uh, article begins. Dark was swelling, but he could see he, being a cop, the woman inside was a car on a bridge, was shaking, and there were bruises and swelling around one eye, the traces of a broken eye socket. That you know, that's not recreational sex when you have a broken eye socket. Mm-hmm. The woman looked out at him. Her face, tear streaked. She told him she was trying to get away from her boyfriend. He had threatened to kill her, she said. He had assaulted her repeatedly over the course of a four-year relationship, she said, once so badly that she went into a coma. So what's your reaction so far? So a cop meets a woman on a bridge, and he's he's a cop, and he's saying, for God's sake, what would your reaction be to meeting somebody like that woman? Too many of them to mention,
1: I, to Synthesize. I mean, what, do you mean what would my reaction be to why she might be in this mess?
0: Right. I guess when I'm you're a bar. woman on a bridge, you can't get analytical. I mean, you, your business started, you were an interventionist, behavioral interventionist. You, you tended to be brought in in emergencies, mm. but then you expand your net because, you know, obviously you can see the same emergency every week.
1: Yeah, yeah. You try to get to a
0: place.
1: Yeah, right. So if I if I I was intervening with her, but then, you know, I interviewed a guy recently. uh, I'm going to be putting the interview up. He used a tactic that I always have always used, but he has a name for it called surgical empathy, and just a way to remember it. Where you get to a place where someone is in some deep emotion. He worked with suicide uh, people who are have committed suicide, tried to commit suicide, and. I would think about her as in terms of what raw emotions is she feeling and what is she trying to escape from and you know why would that make sense? And then doing that usually gets people to be like you say, you can't reason say, Hey, you shouldn't be on this bridge, or why don't you get out of your relationship? Or she's thought about that, you know, and she's not up for four years she's been with the guy. Right. Previously she was in the coma. So sometimes just being in it with somebody, like really seeing the world through their eyes and articulating that to the extent that they believe that you can see the world through their eyes gets them to start thinking, feeling connected to another person. So that's, that would be that my reaction.
0: Part of a process because, right. and what you, and understanding them, in other words, what they're doing makes sense to them. Right. In other words, you can't say, Oh, uh, you can't say, Oh, you're crazy. Or why are you with that guy? So they give a little background. By the time she was 38, she had three daughters, each of them with corn silk blonde hair, each named for a character in a movie. She may take movies too seriously. I've had clients like that. For years, she had wrestled with addiction. They mean drugs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's part. They don't mention drugs in the story. So that's gone. It, my best. She's quit drugs, but she hasn't quit addiction. Rising before dawn at times to make her way to a methadone clinic. And she had been in two abusive relationships spanning nearly half her life. So she has drug addiction and beating up boyfriend experience. She's given up drugs, but she's not giving up being beat up by boyfriends. Hmm. So now if I'm giving my lecture, I'm saying, you know, drugs. People quit drugs all the time. Did anybody ever quit smoking? Giving up abusive relationships is harder. And how do I know that? Well, this is gonna be, her experience hadn't given her much confidence the police could help said her daughter, Savannah Stone 20, who recalled one of her mother's previous relationships seeing at least seven restraining orders. We're we're not. I'm not pro police, but over the days that follow, oh, I think her main mentality was if I call the police, are not going to do anything. But over the days that followed, Mr. Dion was released on bail. He's the guy who beat her. Mrs. Neal sent a handwritten letter asking prosecutors to drop the charges. And three of the charges were dismissed. Mr. Dion pleaded guilty, a choking charge, and paid a $245 fine. And they were together again.
1: You mentioned experiments done at a Baltimore City hospital. And they were taking people who were drinking uh, destructively on the streets and bringing them to a place where um, you got two options. You can drink as much as you want here. You can socialize here without drinking. And they chose the social aspect. People get beyond drugs. Like you were just saying this, but people get beyond drugs all the time. Usually, that includes an involvement with other people that makes themselves and the other people important, and you kind of work together and live together in a sense of community your relationship when you're in the relationship and the person the other party of your relationship is your everything i mean she she's so uh this person who is assaulting her is so part of the warp and the wolf of her life he even though he's beating her what does she has kids with him. Uh, she's with him I she also...
0: with him she had three oh, okay. kids with other guys i think
1: there's I don't know this, but i I would imagine that there's some sense of also stability um it, it, despite the uh abusiveness so to leave all of that is worrisome enough. How do you even build a new life? What does that look like and it sounds like she's also concerned that how would she stay safe if she were to do the ultimate thing that would piss this person off and try to cut things off, who knows, maybe the guy's going to kill her. And she doesn't imagine that just saying to the police, hey, I'm being assaulted, is going to, you know, give her sanctuary from anything bad that's happening. So it was a
0: combination normal. of she's kind of in, that's her life, and mm-hmm. her fear. And so the question is, this story doesn't have a happy ending. Um, and I'm going to throw to you, you know, I'm throwing it to you all online. Is there any way to imagine a different ending? Mm -hmm. And this cop took her to a different safe house in a different state. They didn't have a bed for her, so he personally paid for a room in a hotel motel. And um, I I think she didn't he bought her shoes and food. You know, the guy, the cop's trying to be a human being. But this is going back to the last time he beat her up, or she had a coma. And the cops are trying to prosecute her, and there's a DA. She wrote a letter saying, Oh, I don't want you to prosecute him. So now, tentatively, Mrs. Neal is trying to start a new life separate from Mr. Dion. This is the guy's taking her, I think, to another state. Staff members of the shelter documented this process meticulously, police records show. She filled out forms for victims' compensation. She arranged a visit with her oldest daughter, Justice Stone. She named her daughter Justice. Huh. She looked at an apartment, a place where she could live alone. She wasn't crazy about the carpeting. She kept looking. The people, the social worker type people, say, well, she has to get a new life. Mm-hmm. And so she meets another woman named Ashley Lasante, another housekeeper liked her right away. She was goofy and fun once the supervisor walked in to find Mrs. Neal jumping on one of the beds. And Mrs. Neal explained deadpan that she had seen a dust bunny on the overhead fan and was trying to clean it. She trusted me, Mrs. Lasante said. Maybe she realized I was a little broken too. Uh, They interviewed Mrs. Lasante for this article. Mrs. Lasante's still alive. So the worst outcome hasn't occurred for her. On June 7th, Mrs. Neal did not return home to the shelter. So she's, they're helping her to form a new life. The news alarm, Mrs. Burns, uh, who's probably, I don't know, the DA, who knows, the shelter. I mean, people are trying to do the right thing. She knew by then that Mr. Dion had served a 41-month jail sentence for criminal vehicular homicide and the death of his previous girlfriend. And she knew he had pleaded guilty to obstructing the breathing in the 2014 case involving Mrs. Neal. Domestic violence experts view choking as a predictor of mounting danger. I definitely remember going, are we going to find her body? June 8th, Mrs. Neal walked into Berlick's police station to report that she was safe. So Mrs. Neal has left the shelter and she's going to the police station. And she said, I'm okay. But she's back with her boyfriend, Mr. Dion. Sergeant Ronald Lund, who took the report, suspected that Mrs. Neal was lying, but said that short of assigning a Scott Carter to follow her, there was not much they could do. I mean, what are the, it, the problem with all addictions, of course, is it's self-initiated behavior. And you can try and lock people up. Officers swung by Mr. Dion's trailer for bail checks, but found no one there. Their hands were tied quote, it's very frustrating because we do understand the cycle of domestic violence. And you know, love makes people do crazy things, Sergeant Lund said. So Love and Addiction is a book about how some people call this behavior love, but that's actually an addiction. He added, Lund, There are families we still deal with that have been doing this dance for 20 years. The Police are getting kind of poetical. Common sense is like, you know, why do you stay with this person? At the end of the day, it's love and hope that they're going to change. Mrs. Neal continued to work her shifts at the Best Western. Now, though... Now it gets tragic. She began to come in with new injuries, bruises on her face and arms, a bite mark, and once, no shoes, explained to one coworker that Mr. Dion had taken them to prevent her from leaving home. So they're back together, he's controlling her. And he controls her in the most primitive ways a human being can do, but by beating her. I don't know, what cave, I don't wanna put down cavemen, but I guess that's how they owned a the woman. Um, one night late in June, she called Mrs. Lasante, Mrs. Neal called her friend Lasante, sounding desperate. But as Mrs. Lasante scrambled to come pick her up, Mrs. Neal suddenly backed out and told her not to come. The next day, Mrs. Neal came into work with a front tooth knocked out. You could tell she was embarrassed with her hand over her mouth, she said. I was like, you know what, girl, you're beautiful. I don't think your teeth define you. She and Mr. Dion were fighting. He didn't want her to see her work friends. So now we're down to the essence of addiction. He's a craze controlling freak. He doesn't want her to have any other friends. I mean, he's beating her up because she has friends. What's that about? It's about he needs somebody like her. In Love and Addiction, we said... You t- you shit up heroin because you know exactly what you're going to get. It's totally predictable. It gives you the experience you want. All you have to do is get the drug and inject it. He wants something in that relationship, gratifies him in a way he's too anxious to go out and try and get a real relationship or to conduct this relationship in a real way. And so he makes it as predictable and as controlled as a drug injection, which means, well, she can't see her family. Her father was actually very tried to be supportive um or friends that so that's like heroin addiction he didn't want her to see her work friends now here's the difficult part the two exchanged frantic angry text messages you say i don't have the balls watch this she wrote meaning well i'll, I'll show you i'll do it anyhow and then he didn't beat her up now This is what he did. He threatened to break up with her. His threat to her. Well, I'll break up with you. Telling her to go see her slut friends at work. I'm moving on, I will find myself a hottie. He said he was tired of her her mouth. And how did she react? She backed off and seemed to plead with him, sorry. No friends. She's giving in to him. His threat to leave her frightened her so much. She wrote, call me. She wrote, there was no answer. Call me, she wrote. When no answer came, she sent one more message. You're right. I'm no good, she wrote. Your truck is on the bridge. He threatened to leave her. She backed down, apologized for having friends. He stopped messaging her and she goes to the bridge. So we're back to another police officer who finds her in the water. Officer Sanford found himself compulsively reviewing the case in his mind, looking for some error. Like what could they, you know, what could the cops have done at this point? I was at a loss. He said, I didn't know what else we could have done. Is this case soluble, Zach? If you were somehow involved in this case with the police and Mrs. Neal, I mean, she oh, she did she didn't die from drowning, but she was severely injured and she died in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I, I know you feel you feel you don't reject and nobody can come to you and say, Oh, I have a problem, and you say, Oh. I'm not going to deal with that, or that's too hard for me. You don't have that response in your repertoire, exactly. And you, first of all, you, you deal with school kids. You're not allowed to say, "Oh, forget you." That's your job there in the school. You that's your job. Hmm. Um, how would you have approached this problem?
1: I always do like an accusations audit because when you're, when you come in and you're somebody uh, who has some sort of authority, I can imagine all of the reasons why somebody in any situation wouldn't want to talk to me. And I think uh, you already asked me, well, what would I be thinking if I were that police officer? Um, I think some of the things I could have started with is something like harm reduction. And also what I said before, like a surgical empathy kind of a thing, you know, you're beat up and nobody wants to be beat up you're probably worried that I'm going to issue some sort of a mandate on you or pull you from a life that that you want to preserve you're probably don't have a good uh, you know a, an outstanding history with dealing with police or social workers because they're despite their wanting to help you they can't really understand or you haven't been able to articulate what your deepest kinds of concerns are and so I want to let you know that I'm not going to be boosterish that you do one thing or another I'm certainly not going to make you do one thing or another even if I think it's in your best interest all I want for you is to be safe and to be happy and if that means getting slightly safer and slightly happier whatever that looks like to you the least I could do is just be a uh, be a person who can listen to you so if there's anything- there
0: is a term for that it's motivational interviewing. Bill Miller uses it, and it comes from Buddhism. It's called radical empathy.
1: Mm -hmm. So I might say, you know, then I can assume that there's one thing that she could want, which is not to be in all of this alone, rattling these ideas competing for her attention in her own head and never being able to speak it into existence among people she can trust. So what I might offer is to be set up a situation where there's is somebody or some buddies that she can talk to about this with no worry of secondary consequences that are not in her control
0: you might throw them into the discussion or that other yeah or or
1: set up a more long-term ability to discuss things like we're never going to you you didn't do anything wrong by being beaten up so you're never going to get into trouble um, if you don't want to prosecute someone who's beating you up, we're not going to get them into trouble. We just want you to be safe and happy. So if you ever want to, if you ever think of a way that we, I, we can help you adjust your situation so that we don't have to pull you from your normal life, but you could be safer and or happier, you, you can let us know. And if uh, well, that's a
0: harm reduction solution, a, everybody wants her to leave him. She's not going to leave him. That's a radical solution. It's sort of like saying, oh, they're shooting up heroin. They'd probably be better not shooting up heroin one way and another. But they haven't stopped shooting up heroin. We're going to make that situation work better.
1: The police officer already spoke that kind of wisdom in that article, except he did it retroactively. So it's not really heroic. So when you say after the fact, Well, you know, love that makes people do crazy things. You should know that going in. You could think, well, love makes people do crazy things. In other words, there's a possibility that she's not going to leave this guy. I'm not going to, you know, I can make it easier for her to leave him if that's what she wants to do. I can make sure she knows I've got her back and will protect her to the extent I can if that's what she wants to do. But I should kind of assume that she's not going to leave him. Because
0: she hasn't left him for years and he put her in a coma. What you're saying on the one hand is incredibly radical and scary. On the other hand, it's like common sense. A guy who fixes shoes would say, oh, you mean they haven't done change in 20 years? Well, they're going to keep doing that.
1: Do you know anybody who works with um, like suicide uh, prevention kind of things? People who do really good work in in that? I'm sure you've met. So a guy told me, Yeah, here's how we talked to a person one time. She was she was in. She tried to take her life a few times. And this is the third time and she was unsuccessful, but really wanted to. And there's nothing they could do for her at the hospital. And he's a psychiatrist and wanted to cut. So they said to clear someone's got to talk to her. So can you talk to her? And he said he was delirious. He'd been working for 24 hours and and he listened to everything she had to say. And he really believed like, wow, if I were her, I might want to kill myself. And he responded, He at first he thought he was going to get in trouble for this, but then he realizes this is kind of how you have to act. He said, uh, let's call her Laura. Laura, I had no idea it was so bad. Um, and I can understand why well, you might want to take your own life. Um, if you did that, I would cry for you because you're of importance to me. But I would understand why you did it. I hope that you don't have to. But it's so, no, nothing, no problem solving, no nothing, just understanding the situation it's, that so she's that's in. That's
0: radical empathy, and
1: but that, but that's now common practice in suicide prevent. Well, it is, and, and, it's, um, and
0: so, so a lot of guts. Let's remember this woman ended up dead. Yes. So, whatever they did, there has to be something better.
1: I see. Yeah, I see. What somebody you're I can
0: understand why you want to kill yourself is an improvement over what everything else they were trying.
1: Her response to him was something, and of course, you make yourself in a story sound like things are a little bit more uh, whatever, cut and straightforward than they really probably happened. But her response was something like, "If you can understand why I want to kill myself, then maybe I don't have to." That was the gist of what she she said at leaving there. And, that's what I could imagine doing that in this case because you have to think about how how often has it been have you been successful in just going through the standard sequence of things when there's a domestic assault and what could make it more successful and That's what you're asking right now. What could actually well,
0: you're you know, saying? It's well, sort of like it's the exact parallel. You don't go to the person and say, "Oh, we'll stop shooting a heroin here." Uh, we'll give you methadone or will put you in rehab. You're saying, um, well, I understand why you stay in that relationship. I, you're telling me you don't want to leave it. And I'm not going to tell you, you have to leave it. And if you don't leave, that's your only chance of survival is leaving it, and so she's dead. Because- therapists,
1: therapists are worried to do harm reduction because they say, what if I put the idea in their head that it's okay to do drugs? Well that those people were doing drugs before they got to them. And so you're not putting the idea in their mind. You're not enabling anything except to, for a deeper conversation or thought. People who have got, are checking in with a psychiatrist because they've had thoughts of suicide and have tried to commit suicide, you're not putting a thought in their head that, well, suicide's a way out. They already know suicide's a way out. And somebody in a domestic um, abusive relationship, you're not putting it in her head that she ought to stay with her spouse, she's already been doing that for four years. You're meeting her. I mean, this is the trope. You're meeting her where exactly where she is, and then you can sort of climb, try to climb out of the hole together, or not at all. But it's better than it's better than uh, making her recoil from the help.
0: And you have to have, and she might have died anyhow, but she did die this way. Mm-hmm. we are not doing an experiment, so you could have been blamed for it. But you're saying this is the radical path you have to try to take as an alternative route to what in her case was suicide. In a way, she agreed. In a way, she ta- you're saying it's like she had taken all those dare messages in. Oh, I'm pathetic, I'm a worthless person, I can't leave this guy, even though he abuses me. Everybody's right. I might as well kill myself is sort of the logical conclusion right. of that lot of
1: thinking. That's been my problem. I know I'm getting away from this story, but that's just been my problem in helping people since I've started doing it is that you, you don't want every person who's able to offer help, who's in the purview of the person needing help. And they think, well, all these people, the potential helpers, they're, they're never going to understand this problem that I have. Well, I, There's no more help. And then, right, you say things can get self-fulfilling at that point. I guess maybe everybody was right. Not even the helpers can help me.
0: And it's, uh, you know, we're saying we're in favor of self-efficacy. Yes. We believe people can change their lives. But somehow they have to be at a point where they feel, I think, three things. Good enough about themselves, capable of doing something. <clears throat> and wanting to do something and those three elements they don't have those They're, they may not have any of them and you're <clears throat> thinking the question you're thinking is how do i help them to get those three things working within a situation where they might even be you know just like a per- you might work with the person who's still shooting heroin you know like um pat denning does P- I- people are taking drugs and you could be working with a person in an abusive relationship without demanding that they get out of it or saying well I'm going to work with you if you're going to still keep getting beat up cuz she still keep getting beat up and coming into work and she's humiliated.
1: Hmm. So I like what you did. I the way that you set this up the way that you framed it is that at the top you're talking about a nationwide they're getting to be a worldwide just absolute shibboleth that that drugs cause addiction drugs are bad if people take drugs but when tasks when taken to task on those things those arguments really fall apart i mean you can't actually pursue at least in some circumstances as we've seen can actually pursue a court case with this as evidence your story that you really want to believe can't be evidence but okay it didn't work in court but it sort of works in the minds of Americans that everyone believes this to greater or lesser degrees. These these stories that are mythological, and you're saying a couple ways of attacking them. If our job is to help people put things in better perspective when it comes to drugs or addiction, well, on one hand, people take drugs, and well, I mean, just look at these. They'll show shows that on
0: television.
1: They'll show it there on television.
0: Doing it, they have problems doing it. We're not. We're not even saying they're doing it right or right. good. But they are alive. They are the woman's trying to track, Coel's trying to track down the person who sexually sold her and her friend who permitted it. She's living a life, she's working, she has friends. That's the train we're on.
1: Which is good. And then again, we encounter people like that people who are, will talk sensibly about what drugs really are. Like drugs are just like anything else. But what people miss is a concept of, I mean, who am I talking to, but a concept of addiction, because people really do get into trouble, be it with drugs, relationships, anything else. Addiction's a, I mean, it's an experience, and people can go down the rabbit hole with it. And so at the same time as we need a recognition that people can take drugs and live normal lives, and they just do, it's just what happens, look around you. We also need to think about when it comes to the deepest problems people have that while they can't be drug focused, they can, we can have a concept of what their lives might be like so that we can generate solutions that are appropriate to those things, as is the case of this person in a abusive relationship that she can't seem to get out of.
0: Well, we're coming to the end of our uh, hour together to stay. Um, We haven't come up with any obvious answers But we're talking about... Yes, you summarized. It's not the thing that's causing the problem. Um, It's how the person is relating to it. That's one point. The second point is even when things are bad, there's some motivation behind it. Hmm. There's some reason that person has which they may view as inescapable. And three... The therapy approach is radical empathy, which is, well, I'm in it with you. I'm going to, I understand why you're doing this and why you can't leave it. You can relax with me and let's together think about what this is like and what your options are. Did I get that right, that last part, or do you want to expand it or change it a little? No,
1: no, that's perfect. At some point, point, it can't be today, but we've gone over our time, but at some point, uh, I think I'd like to talk more about that last bit. It's something that I'm trying to um, figure out for myself how to express to other people who want to do well by people who need help. And um, there's some sort of, um, hmm, how do I say it? There's something that people need to do when they're doing radical empathy that's beyond what words can describe, I think, uh, but th- at least so far in my career. And that'd be One fun other
0: thing to say. There's a bot, the people who end up dead, Mrs. Neal wasn't an average person. And so we know people who take drugs and lead normal lives. We certainly know people who have relationships and lead normal lives. We know people who have bad relationships and lead normal lives. Our whole approach is segue to the top three quarters of the population, but they're not the ones who end up in, for the most part, in the death column. Right. And we keep saying, well, 100,000 people died. Most of those people, you know, don't have stable middle class lives and a husband or a wife or whatever. And so we're at the same time saying, well, most people are going to be able to deal with this on their own three quarters. We can be, empath- we can empathize with them and help them. And part of what we're telling people is, well, that's just going to happen. They're going to quit on their own as long as their lives are rich enough. And then there's that quarter of people. I'm just making that number up. Um, well, let's say it's a smaller percentage of that who went, certainly it's a smaller percentage who ends up dead, but they require a, a different kind of um interaction and they're our target population often i mean the problem with middle class harm reduction people i won't name anybody like in new york city is they're dealing with people who make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year have relationships and have good paying jobs and they need god bless them they need help too but who's worried about the people like mrs neal who end up dead with drugs or in relationships
1: right so we don't it's uh it's not sensible to have a uh a Long Island solution for a West Virginia problem.
0: Uh, an Orange County solution for a West Virginia problem. And yeah. one of your advantages is you're in a school system and you have you take on all comers. Hmm. I mean, some of that population isn't privileged or close to it. Right. And, you're, and you don't say, oh, I only deal with middle-class clients who don't have any problems, you know, who have a stable life structure. Well, all right, we've opened up a can of worms, I'm sure, but, you know, and we've gone from drugs to love and we've gone from middle-class privileged clientele to the people who end up more often dead. And we'll deal with it more in the future.
1: Thank you again, Stanton. Had a great time.
0: Au revoir.